The fourweekmba.com is a leading resource of business insights. Top business schools around the world reference to it as the go-to place for business insights. Now it's podcast. Digital business models will break down for you how tech companies make money, what value propositions they offer, why they are successful, and what they're doing next. From Amazon, Google, Facebook, and many others, the Digital Business Models Podcast will give you the top business education you need to understand the digital business world. Whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or wanting to be an entrepreneur, the Digital Business Models Podcast is your go-to place for your business education. For today's session, uh, I have the pleasure of having with me again uh, Ash Mauria, entrepreneur, founder of uh, LeanStack, author of Running Lean and Scaling Lean, and creator of, creator of the Lean Canvas, which is a very effective one-page tool to actually uh, create a business model. So thank you, uh, Ash, again for uh, being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Yep. Today, we're going to be focusing on the topic of uh, scaling lean, so, uh, which is, of course, your uh, second book. And I think it's, uh, it contains a lot of uh, incredible uh, frameworks and resources for entrepreneurs. So um, actually, would you uh, mind to give us a bit of uh, historic understanding of how we got from uh, lean manufacturing up to today where we see this uh, flow of uh, continuous uh, innovation? Sure. So if, if we go back to, let's say, the last 100 years or so, um, that's when we were in that manufacturing era. And the unfair advantage all companies were all about was producing mass-producing products. So the companies that produced the most amount of products for the lowest costs tend to win. So it was all about efficiency. Uh, after the war, a number of companies started to get squeezed. And this is where Toyota, the, the, the Taichi Ono over at Toyota in, invented the Toyota production system, which kind of spawned this new way of thinking, taking a lot of just-in-time techniques and bringing in what became eventually lean manufacturing. Um, and that's kind of the origins. If we trace back a lot of even what we talk about today in the startup a lot of some of those core principles go back to this idea of being less wasteful, con- continuous improvement. Um, now it has morphed over the years. So as the world has changed, as we have moved from that manufacturing era to more digital products, um, the need for speed became ever more important as we got into PC computing. Um, requirements began to change faster and faster. And so methodologies and frameworks evolved. We moved from you know, a traditional manufacturing to waterfall. Some of you may have lived through that. We then moved from waterfall to agile, where we began to bring in more iterations and, and, uh, and feedback along the way um, to where we are today. So when Lean Startup came on the scene, um, the big shift then was our move away from even just PCs to the internet. Um, as we moved on to the internet, the connection between us and our customers almost vanished. We can, we're more connected today than ever before to customers, which means that we can learn faster, but also it means that customers demand more than ever before. And so our need to go faster has become, has, has reached a, a certain point to where we as a company, so Stack, started calling this continuous innovation. So it's no longer stop and go. You know, we can't take six months to do requirements analysis and another six months to build a product. 
Um, if you look at some of the top companies today, uh, the likes of Amazon, Facebook, you know, Netflix, uh, all these companies are continuously building and launching products. Um, the, the, the stages between requirements gathering and building and testing have all blurred together. It's all happening continuously. Interesting. And um, let me touch another, uh, I, what I think it's a very critical point. Uh, as uh, today, there is a sort of a building up this misconception that uh, as uh, we start using more and more the scientific uh, sort of method within the entrepreneur, uh, for, for entrepreneurs, um, many people get confused between science and uh, entrepreneurship when they're uh, two uh, separate domains. What's the key difference between uh, like being an entrepreneur and being uh, a scientist? Sure. Yeah, so I would say the difference is in, in goals. So, so certainly the, the analogy helps. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs tend to, tend to fly by gut, by gut feel and instinct, which you know, has its place, but it's also a recipe for just driving on faith. And so again, when the Lean Startup came on the scene, a big message there was this idea of thinking like a scientist, thinking of your project, your startup, your product as an experiment. And so we can run... Um, and learn and use facts to make course corrections along the way. So all that made sense, but there is the dark side, which is if we go to the other extreme and run business like scientists, then we would take forever to launch anything because we would want to build the most perfect experiments. You know, if we truly are trying to uncover truths, we should be doing double blind tests and have no selection bias. Um, we should be you know, looking for what is really true out there. Business is different in that we want to not uncover perpetual truths, unlike science. We want to find temporal truths that may not even be absolute truths. So these might be quirks of, of demographics. Maybe the millennials behave a certain way that all of a sudden makes certain products possible. Um, and entrepreneurs are opportunistic. They need to act on that. So being able to see signals in the noise and build something um, that can make the business model work is the goal of the entrepreneur. Um, employing the scientific method to run some experiments to get there is helpful, but not at the, not at the expense of going overboard and taking too long to find something that will hold true forever, which, which just doesn't happen in, in business. All business models get disrupted. Yep. Great point. And as you mentioned that one of the key aspects that, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurs can learn from uh, the scientific method, especially is the, uh, the, the doing tests and experiments. But um, what are the key ingredients for, for uh, an experiment uh, in the, in the, um, for entrepreneurs rather than scientists? Yeah, so I, I find that, um, well, so I find, well, first, I, I still think something that is common in both is this idea of starting with models. Um, so you find a lot of entrepreneurs who kind of latch onto experimentation, what you find is that they just run lots and lots of experiments, but they pick and choose. They run the experiments that are most fun, like doing landing page tests or, you know, changing, changing words here and there on their, on their copy, um, which are nice. They're optimization experiments, but they may not be the most critical things in the business. So where kind of we stand or where I stand is, trying to, like a scientist, build some models. And for an entrepreneur, that is the business model. So build up a model, use that model to make certain predictions, um, prioritize what might be riskiest, which is, again, more critical for an entrepreneur than a scientist, 
because they are trying to, in a, in a given time frame, get to a point where their business can, can survive. Um, so finding a business model that works before they run out of resources. Now, to be able to do that, there is this step of, so we, we break it down as model prioritize test. So start with the model, a business model, prioritize what might be riskiest in that model, not what's easiest, and do the hard stuff. So that's the run experiments around those risky assumptions, not necessarily what might just be you know, volumes of experiments. It's not about the volume or the quality that fundamentally matters. Yep, and uh, I think uh, in the book you also highlight that uh, uh, one of the, which is one of the most important building blocks of a, of a lean uh, startup model, which is the monetization, is also the, the building block that you want to uh, validate uh, early on. Uh, why, why is that important? Why is that so important? Sure, so, so the way I, I like to make that dif- difference clear is the difference between a hobby and a business is one makes revenue. So one has monetization potential or is monetizable and the other isn't. Um, And if the goal here is to build a business model that works, one of the key aspects is ensuring that that business model captures value. In other words, makes money. And the sooner we do that, the better. So we we have seen from the dot-com days. So even now you see many people deferring that question to later um you know who is the customer who is that customer is the one that buys but who is that customer and what are they going to pay Um, we we tend to defer that to later because i find that a lot of entrepreneurs behave like artists we we try to create art but we don't want to put a price on it because in our minds it's uncomfortable it devalues the art we don't we sometimes underprice our stuff all these biases come into play but one needs to outgrow those. If you're really trying to build a business model, that's one of the first things to test. Um, so I asked two questions, which is one, who is the customer? Because um, in some scenarios, you may have some people that are users, other that are customers, knowing that distinction, very, very important. The second question is, you know, how do you collect money? So what is that pricing model? How do you collect it? How much is it? So, so what is that? So that's, that, that would be the second question. Yep, and uh, as you highlighted, I think it's very important to emphasize that um, uh, if you're creating a, a company today, it's very important that uh, you try to monetize it uh, very quickly. And, you know, many, uh, as you explained also, uh, many uh, believe, uh, or like, like, for example, they use uh, as, as a case study like Facebook, but as you highlight, actually Facebook was making money uh, very early on and actually uh, was... Uh, was um, uh, expanding uh, with uh, with a uh, um, sort of um, uh, staged uh, rollout. W- what's that? I mean, how does a staged rollout work, and uh, what can we learn from an example like uh, Facebook? Sure. Um, so it's it's actually a strategy of not launching your product to everyone all at once. Um, and we find many examples out in in the world. I'll share two. Facebook being one of them, but Facebook was actually an accidental stage rollout strategy. And it was accidental because I don't necessarily know, of course, because I've not spoken to Mark Zuckerberg about this, but through interviews, um, he was not able to launch to everyone because he was a college student, didn't really have the resources to do so, um, didn't have the credibility to go and raise money because he wasn't the first social network back then. There were many others out there with millions of dollars in revenue, millions of users as well. So Friendster, MySpace, they were all exist, existing at the time, you know, LinkedIn. 
And so he couldn't go and do a public launch. So he launched on one college campus, Facebook. Um, that product immediately took off. It, it had amazing traction on one campus and that made him pay attention to it. Of course, he could benchmark his traction versus his closest competitors and saw that this was outperforming them in terms of usage and engagement and monetization potential because usage engagement in that world translates to advertising revenue. Uh, he tested that by putting some Google ads, um, which, which was an easy way to test. And he was able to show that this was producing twice as much revenue potentially from a very small number of users, but very highly engaged. Um, so that was the constraint he had is he didn't have money to launch publicly, but by launching on one campus, he could show that this was working quite well. Now to prove to himself and his team and potentially future investors, he went to other campuses and he carefully picked which ones. So he went to other uh, schools that had social networks. So those were his early adopters. Uh, and his job was to displace the incumbent in there. Um, he also picked you know, Ivy League schools and kind of well-named well schools. And so that created also a sense of exclusivity. And so this, by the time they were done with the next four schools, word got out that Facebook is the coolest social, you know, college social networking platform out there. Only the elite schools have it. And so every other school in the U.S. and maybe other parts of the world wanted to get on that launch list. Um, so they kind of use that very, very strategically to take a constraint, which is I don't have resources to publicly launch and turn it into something where they got a pipeline of, of schools just waiting to be the next one. Um, I can see them going into their investor's office and saying, you pick the next school for us and we can demonstrate amazing traction in that school just within 30 days because they had figured out the system for doing so. And so this is what I call in the book a customer factory. They pretty much knew how to go in and get this factory up and running very quickly where users would come, be highly engaged, they would monetize it and kind of make the whole business model work. And they could do this at will. Um, so that's kind of a superpower they gained, which is why behind closed doors, um, investors were giving them huge valuations because they could see their metrics. And in these microcosms of markets, which is these different schools, they could see them lighting them up kind of at will. They were like little Petri dishes of experiments that they were running, but because they had repeatability, they could tell a very compelling uh, business model scalability story to their investors, which is why their valuation went through the roof. Um, so I'll share just one other example here. So if we look at another company, uh, this would be Tesla and Elon Musk. The way he launched his, his electric car also followed a stage rollout. Um, those of you that can know the story even at a high level know that there were three or four cars, but there are three cars that were part of his launch plan, which was starting with a expensive sports car, the Roadster, which was a way for them to test the riskiest assumption, which was all about the battery. Can we actually build an, an, a, a new electric battery that can go 200 miles on one charge? They started with that. That was their stage one. They then went to stage two, which they built, uh, which, which they built at Model S, which was a car they built on their own. Um, they had to get good at on building cars. It was all about addressing those risks. Um, and then they finally launched their stage three, which was the less expensive, more affordable uh, electric car. That was the Model 3. And so this was a stage rollout as well. Had Elon Musk gone to stage three in the beginning, which he had the means of doing so, he could have taken the battery that they invented, put that in a cheaper vehicle um, and sold that. But he didn't do it because that would have 
brought on too many risks all at once. So he too employed a deliberate stage rollout strategy. Um, I sometimes like to call that permission to scale. So whether you're a startup, whether you're a corporate, we have to realize that products go through a life cycle and rather than trying to rush to get to scale prematurely and then making a lot of mistakes and getting overwhelmed with risk, if we instead give ourselves permission to scale, start with smaller number of numbers of customers and users and, and, and more systematically roll it out, it makes the process more manageable. It helps us tackle the riskiest assumptions first. Very, very interesting. And uh, uh, you actually highlight that uh, when you do this uh, stage uh, rollout, you probably go from uh, uh, um, a first phase, which is more of a problem uh, solution fit, to a second, which is more like a product market fit. And once you really reach that stage, that's when probably you're ready for, for scale. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. So if, I, if I put some goals around a problem solution fit is, is proving that we have a big enough market. Um, this is where we search for early adopters. So in the Roadster case uh, with Tesla, those were those, you know, typically, you know, tech, um, tech entrepreneurs or tech, you know, tech workers who were interested in, in an electric car. Um, those were the early adopters. So a lot of kind of Silicon Valley and, and places around there were the early adopters of, of that vehicle. In the Facebook case, that would be college students on Harvard and those Ivy League schools. Um, so you start with that smaller group and then as you begin to roll out, um, the product gets to more, more, more and more mainstream. So that would be product market fit. And then that's when we really try to grow well beyond that. And that would be the scaling stage. Yep. And um, I wonder whether, uh, because, you know, startups uh, today emphasize uh, in the startup world, there's a lot of emphasis around uh, venture capital, but we know that uh, uh, up to a certain stage, uh, probably bootstrapping your idea is the best way to go. So uh, my guess is uh, probably when you reach uh, the, the scale, that's when probably capital and venture capital might become important because probably speed and money become also uh, key elements. Would this yeah. be the right assumption or? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so I, I would say in, in, in an ideal world, and it's not just me, even the venture capitals and other angel investors will give you the same advice. Um, the best ideal time to raise your big round of funding would be as, as you cross product market fit. So once you have product market fit, some success is guaranteed. The question is how big can it get? Um, the other thing that's also going in your favor then is that your goal, you, you, you being the entrepreneur or innovator, uh, you, you, your goal and the investor's goal are completely aligned. It's all about growth. You have figured out the product, you've figured out the customer, now it's really engines of growth. How can we pump in money if we're using paid engines or viral engines? You know, how do we invest in those engines of growth and maximize the potential? Um, that's something that, as I said, investors care about, you also care about, and so those, those um, goals are aligned. So that's the ideal. Now, in a realistic sense, you know, everyone has the J-curve. So before you get to profitability and product market fit, we have to invest in product, which takes time, money, effort. You know, where does that come from? Um, this is, of course, going to be a function of the kind of business model and product that you have. Um, if you can bootstrap, if you can go all the way to product market fit and then raise money, you, you maintain the most control in your company. You, you have a lot 
of say in, in, in where the company goes from that point on. So that's a very powerful place to be. But it's not the case for every kind of product. If you were doing something that required capital investment upfront, this is where we don't chase VCs, but there is now um, increasingly so a very mature uh, market of other investors that play in that space. Those would be kind of super angels or angel investors that understand that you still haven't reached product market fit and you're going to be learning and pivoting and course correcting. And they tend to be more patient for those types of things. They are taking bigger risks. So they do ask for bigger returns. They give you smaller amounts of money, but want um, bigger proportional returns than a VC would. Uh, but that's just how, that's just the nature of investing. Um, and then even earlier than that, um, if you aren't, haven't even launched, it's going to be hard to find even angel investors. This is where things like bootstrapping come into play or the three Fs, the three Fs being friends, families, and fools, um, uh, kind of a, 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 a joke that's out there, but, but that's where raising some seed capital is a way that people get started. And that of course tends to be, you know, smaller amounts of money just to be able to get that, that early validation, early traction. Yep, just to just to mention a popular example, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, firstly uh, first raised the money from uh, uh, his family, if, uh, if I'm not um, mistaken. So, um, and uh, exactly. for uh, in terms of uh, of course bootstrap, bootstrapping your company, uh, the Lean Canvas is uh, an extremely valuable resource. Uh, and um, th- th- there is one thing, though, uh, uh, is that probably uh, some people that approach the, the Lean Canvas or any sort of a canvas like the business model canvas, um, they-, they think uh, you just need the business model story and then you're ready to go. But most probably in many cases, you need to actually think of a few uh, stories and business models that you can actually uh, execute in-, in parallel. How does this process work? Yeah, so so this is the, the both the, the challenge and the opportunity, which is which is uh, which is just the nature of early stage, is that we are trying to find optimal business models, but we can't see the future. We don't know what we don't know. This is where a little bit of that scientific thinking comes in. Is we need to experiment. So even at the business model level, one of the things we we are big advocates of is take the idea that you have, but create multiple variants, multiple possibilities of 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 places the idea might go. So I might take the same idea and, and sell it to businesses. So that would be a B2B type of a business model, or it could be B2C, or it could be something different. Maybe it's a marketplace. And so we encourage people in the early days to cast a wider net and try to create these multiple variants on the canvas. So go narrow and specific, but you can create a number of canvases so you can see your idea from many different perspectives. Um, And then we start running some experiments. And what we are trying to do is see which of those canvases, which of those business models, which of those customers and markets are reacting the way we we think they should, Um, which ones are creating more traction than others. Um, If that aligns with your mission, with your vision, you kind of double down on that. And the reason I say that last part is that sometimes it is possible when we do this kind of searching to find yourself in business models that can work, but maybe don't align with your values. Um, And I've been in that situation a few times. I was trying to build products for entrepreneurs. And I found, for instance, that marketers were getting more excited with the product. And sure, I could go to marketers. And not that I do not like marketers, but it would have gone against a lot of the other assets we had in the company. We had a brand, we had channels, 
we'd have to reestablish everything, potentially even create a whole separate company or identity to be able to go into that, uh, that customer segment. And so we decided not to go there. Um, it's a hard thing to say no to a good customer problem um, and, and potential solution that you have, but sometimes those are things that one has to do. Uh, so when you're doing that casting of the, of the canvases of the wider net, it is possible that you will find some promising ideas, some that you, some that you want to go down, others that you don't. You'll also find a lot of ideas that may seem promising on paper, but when you do a little bit of validation, you find that there may already be existing alternatives. Maybe the customers don't have these problems, and so you get rid of them. So that, that generally is the, is the process. Yep, I, I think uh, it's very important to stress out that uh, you know, finding the right business model is also a matter of choice. And I also stumbled uh, on, on the same uh, sort of dilemma uh, when I was going on my blog because I could have monetized the blog right away with advertising by just you know connecting Google AdSense in a minute and making start making money. But there was not a model that for me was viable because uh, it actually put me in conflict with uh, what I thought was uh, the right content to produce, which was like more long-term content rather than push toward more like news or short-term content, which is more on the publishing side. So I didn't want to become a publisher. And that's why I made that choice. So I think it's very important that, you know, we as entrepreneurs, we make choice and we build businesses that align with our, with our values. And this is extremely important because in the, long, in the long term, I think what gives you motivation is also feeling that you're building up the, the kind of business that aligns with who you are rather than just, you know, how you can make money or, you know, it aligns with all the other building blocks. So uh, I thought it was very important to highlight that. Um, and um, in your uh, lean uh, canvas, uh, you actually, um, in your like uh, scaling lean, uh, you actually highlight that there is a key metric for, for startups uh, for, for, for growth, which is more like, uh, you, you call it traction. But how is traction different from revenue and uh, why, why is, metric, uh, is this metric so important? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the first thing I would say is that at the end of, and that was a big message in this book. So the, the first book was a lot about validation techniques. So as we described already, using a canvas to better see your idea and go and do some validation. Um, the challenge of course became when you came back and, and either looked for stakeholders or investors, um, they wanted to see more. They wanted to see growth potential. They wanted to see, you know, things like revenue and profit. And then they of course knew that, in the early stages, revenue and profit are generally non-existent because you have to first make that business model work. So what could we use instead? Um, this is where traction comes in. So the difference between, uh, the key difference between traction and revenue and profit is that traction tends to be, or the right traction metric is a leading indicator for future revenue and profit. Um, and it's very powerful. It can almost predict that revenue and profit will take care of themselves. Um, so, so that's where the power comes in. And so in the early stages, when you don't yet have the revenue and profit to show, if you can show traction instead, that can be a, a good standing. Um, so an example of this could be the, the example we just talked about, Facebook, for instance. Um, so Facebook in the early days was getting lots of traction. So they were getting lots of users hitting their site. They were engaging. They were doing all kinds of things. And so they kind of asked themselves the question is that this engagement is very high what if we put ads, you know, would that engagement drop? Would it stick? You know, would, would they click through? And so they ran some experiments using Google ads and found that it really did stick. Um, and today, even the way they actually position their, their, 
their story to investors is they talk about the user growth, not so much the advertising growth side, uh, because one will control the other. If you get more users on your platform, engaging more, you know, daily active users going up, the advertising naturally takes care of itself. So that's the power of thinking in terms of traction versus revenue. One is leading indicator while the other is a trailing, trailing indicator. Yep, that's uh, that's very very powerful. And you also have a, a way to actually uh, compute uh, uh, ROI, which is uh, way different from how others think of it. Uh, which is uh, you know you, you have this uh, uh, throughput accounting, uh, which I think it's very important concept. Would you mind explaining uh, just a bit how how that works? Yeah, so 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 throughput accounting it was really a concept I borrowed from um, Goldratt's work. So those of you that are familiar with uh, the theory of constraints, um, or his popular book, um, the goal, um, that's where he, he, um, kind of shared this way of, of thinking and he applied it in the manufacturing context. So he was working with factories and really got them thinking about throughput. So if you're in a factory floor, um, many people start going into cost cutting mode, but the problem with cost cutting is that there is a, there is a floor beyond which you can, you can no longer go lower. You can only cut costs so much, and then what are you going to do? But if we flip this around and look at revenue potential or, or potential to make more money, that's almost infinite, at least in theory. Um, so the idea of throughput accounting is flipping that on its, on its head and saying, you know, yes, we want to worry about cost-cutting and efficiency, but the bigger potential here is thinking about upside potential. Um, so that's kind of some of the ideas that I share in the book is how to think about throughput accounting in, in that, in that context from in a, in a business modeling context, similarly on a business modeling side, um, we have the way we deliver value. So that would be the solution you build. Yes, we can make it as efficient as possible in the early days, but that is again, chasing pennies and, and letting you know, dollars slip through the cracks. What we instead should be doing is focusing more on the revenue stream side, trying to maximize things like pricing, for instance, um, trying to identify the right customers, for instance, Let's work on those problems first, and then we can optimize uh, the cost structure side uh, further down the road. Yep. And um, one of the, the, the last things that I'd love to highlight with you uh, is uh, when you go toward the scale, uh, you actually uh, um, suggest to use a 10x model. Uh, how would that work? I mean, why it makes sense to use uh, this sort of 10x model? Yes. So, so we, we, we touched on this a little bit in a, in a qualitative sense. So when we looked at Facebook, for instance, they out of, out of constraints of no money had to go to one campus and then they went to three other campuses and then they kind of rolled out systematically. Um, 10X kind of puts that into more of a, of a systematic context. So what, what we generally tell people, if you're giving yourself permission to scale, instead of thinking of, I'm just going to launch to everyone, start with one customer. I know it's, one sounds just wrong, but um, that is what I call a singularity moment of a product. The moment you can get one person to buy your product and part with their hard-earned money, that's something to celebrate. Um, now, one, of course, is not enough, but if you think about it, every company, whether it's Amazon, Facebook, your company, starts with one customer. So everyone starts in the same place, and then they double, and they double subsequently you know, many, many times, and if you think of 10x, that is really a, sub, a, a sequence of doublings through the power of three is 8x. So if you keep doubling, you will eventually 10x and most people will have 10 customers. So you will 10x once. 
Some of you will get 100 customers, you will 10x again. So the only difference between a, a company like Facebook and say my company or your company is Facebook just doubles more times in rapid succession than we will and they keep doubling and then they eventually slow down. Uh, we may not need to get that big because our business model starts working for our scale um, much, much sooner. So the whole idea of 10xing is almost giving you a mathematical way of thinking of permission to scale. So the way I, I break it down is I get, no matter what the idea is, I'll get a startup or a corporate innovator to start you know, thinking of how do I convert my first customer? And then how do I get to 10? How do I get to 100? How do I get to 1,000? Um, that nonlinear thinking automatically works towards prioritizing the right types of risks. Um, so if we think about the world we live in today, most products, not all, but most products don't suffer from technical risk. They suffer from customer and market risk. And so when you're only serving 10 customers, you can fairly easily do that from a technical perspective. You know, you may only need one web server, for instance, or you may be able to you know, provide high touch onboarding. And so that allows you to supplement the shortcomings of a fully scalable product. And so by giving yourself that permission of doing 10 customers initially, you can do that. And then as you go to the next level, it's not about getting another 10 customers. Now you have to get 100 customers. And that forces you to start investing incrementally in things that will need to scale. So you don't have to go all the way to scale, but it's an incremental way of not just doing easy jumps. It's still hard, but they are manageable, harder steps in that, in that journey. Yep, that's a very powerful approach. Uh, let's uh, close this up with uh, with. Um, a topic which is a bit of a taboo, but also becoming a bit of a buzzword in the startup world, which is about failure. And you point out in the book that actually uh, we need to remove failure from our vocabulary. Why is that? Why is it so important? And how we actually deal with the, with the failure as uh, entrepreneurs? Sure. So, so that's one of the key mindsets that, that we, we try to teach uh, uh, entrepreneurs that work with us very, very early on is removing failure from the, from the vocabulary, not because you're not going to see it, but the problem that we have, even though we talk a lot about fail fast and failing is, 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 a, is, is the way to learn all of those things, at the end of the day, humans, we humans just do not like failure. No one goes out saying, I failed 10 times today and I'm going to keep doing it, right? So it just doesn't sound very good. And so what I've observed, um, and I've seen this even of myself, is that when we encounter an experiment that has failure, our initial reaction is to try to hide it or to justify it. And that's where our biases set in. That's where we need to explain it away. And so we throw an explanation which is biased and oftentimes completely wrong to make ourselves feel good. And then we start selling that story to everyone else. And that, again, is moving away from that scientific way of thinking more into covering up or using faith as a way to just um, explain things away when that isn't really baked in reality. Um, so I find that it's more easily said. So fail fast, more easily said than done. And so in the book, I actually put a quote from Buckminster Fuller, who's a celebrated scientist. And he had a quote that I ran into that I thought was just perfect. What he said was that in, in, there is no such thing as a failed experiment, only unexpected outcomes. Um, and the way that I interpret that is that going back to the whole way of running experiments, we start with a model. So we start with a business model. We make some predictions about how customers will behave. And if they don't behave that way, that's an unexpected outcome. And that's actually something that should be studied because 
what it's telling you is that your way of thinking was off by, by, by some assumption. If you can find that assumption and fix it, you might actually find a breakthrough. If you actually go to the dictionary definition of breakthrough, there is no breakthrough without, an, an, without some unexpected outcome. Because if everything that you expect it to happen does happen, then where's the breakthrough? Um, so again, easy to rationalize, but I find that that's an opportunity. Breakthrough comes from those unexpected outcomes. Calling it failure just makes people you know, get very, as you said, it's a taboo word. It gets them act very silly and, and hide it. But if we instead try to act more like scientists and go after those unexpected outcomes, we may find those breakthrough insights hidden in them. Um, so for me, when I run experiments or when we get other teams to run experiments, when they make predictions and they don't come true, we don't just let them sugarcoat it with some, with some you know, justification. We actually want to go deeper. So call that customer, find out why they didn't buy, or let's run another experiment to see if we can understand some of these root causes. And when we have done that, we have found in those answers, you literally find the gems. That's where you find those breakthrough insights. That's where the inflection points on the hockey stick curve are, are hiding. Yep. Very, very, very interesting. And I'm very glad we had uh, this uh, session. And of course, anyone listening should be also reading uh, the, the, the um, uh, scaling lean and uh, you know, also testing up uh, the lean stack, which is an uh, incredible uh, and helpful tool to, to build up your business model. I'm actually uh, building up uh, my own lean canvas uh, for the four week MBA with the lean stack, and I'll be sharing more. In, in the coming weeks, but uh, it's definitely a very helpful tool. Thank you, Ash, for uh, joining this conversation. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Digital Business Models Podcast, created by 4WeekMBA.com, the leading source of business insights for those wanting to become digital entrepreneurs. Go to 4WeekMBA.com for more top-tier business education.